left weekly radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and you are joined today by presenters Jacob Andrewafa and Sue Bolton. Before we get into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that Free CR and Green Left Radio today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty has never been ceded, and that Green Left Radio is committed to supporting um, ongoing um, the, ca- the ongoing fight for First Nations justice, and 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 campaigns around treaty sovereignty and, and sovereignty. Okay, so um, we have a pretty we have a pretty big program today. So we're going to be there's quite we have quite a bit coming up. Um, so we're going to be speaking to Green Left journalist Isaac Nellis. Um, Later on today about this, I guess this whole kind of concept of the four-day working week, which I think is going to be actually a bit relevant in the light of this discussion that we're just probably about to have in terms of the in terms of a headline news story on wage growth. Then we're going to be um, speaking to um, um, then we're going to be speaking to the AMWU about this ongoing kind of dispute that's happening in Shepparton around Vizo. If I'm if Vizzy. I'm correct, Vizzy, if I'm getting, um, correct. Um, and then also we'll, um, we'll be playing a recording of a talk from, um, Gary Murray. Um, and this is basically from a public forum that Green Left and Socialist Alliance had organised titled Treaty, Sovereignty and First Nations Justice. And in fact, that was actually uh, a very good forum in a lot of ways. Um, in fact, we might even give a bit of a kind of, you know, give a bit of a report back on how that went because I think it was actually quite a significant event in quite a lot of ways. Um, and I think a number of free CR presenters and, um, were, um, were in attendance as well. Now, I guess the kind of first kind of story I kind of want to start off with is, um, this was something that was actually reported in the ABC, um, yesterday. And it, I guess it kind of connects a lot with, um, with a topic that we've actually been discussing quite regularly. But in the context of the fact we're living in this, um, cost of living crisis, inflation is going up. We've been constantly kind of told by big business and, and corporations and all the kind of bureaucrats in the Reserve Bank that, you know, when it comes, we have to really rein in inflation. And in a sense, basically a lot of the blame and a lot of the, um, has been kind of directed towards wages and, and workers. So basically the kind of argument has been kind of being put forward that, you know, workers have to rein it in and, we can't be, we have to slow down wage growth. Otherwise, if we, if we increase wages too much, you know, it's basically going to make the whole situation of inflation worse. But what's quite interesting today, um, today is there's actually been some, I guess, new data that has kind of come out. And, um, I guess maybe Sue, did you want to sort of start off the kind of discussion around this new story? Well, basically, <clears throat> a new report's come out, which has analysed wage growth in the last period. And 
while wages grew more than they have um, in recent times in the December quarter from 32 to 3.5%, that is way behind the rate of inflation, which at that point was around 7.8%. So in other words, it represents a real wage cut of 4.5%. Um, and basically, wages have been lagging way behind the rate of inflation for some years now. And that is a massive um, disconnect between the rate of wage growth and the rate of inflation. Um, and this, um, and, and the economists that have been interviewed, uh, as in this article, which is on the ABC website, are basically talking about how the fact that inflation is clearly not being caused by wage increases. It's being caused by other reasons, including bosses just putting up prices because they think they can get away with it. And in fact, they're actually, um, saying that this isn't, the inflation isn't just to do with war in Ukraine and so forth, but also reflects a lack of competition in parts of the Australian economy, which, you know, makes sense because, you know, you have these big corporations that buy up smaller companies, etc. And um, despite the so-called capitalist myth of competi- competition, keeping prices down, etc., etc., you know, what we've had, I mean, this is not a new thing, but, you know, things are happening um, along this line uh, in a, you know, more uh, exponential way. But, you know, you've, we've seen in the past Bunnings buy up all the smaller hardware stores, Office Works buy up all the smaller stationery stores, Spotlight buy up all the smaller haberdashery stores, so that you have these huge corporations, huge monopolies, and this is actually to do with late-stage capitalism, where there's a monopolisation um, within the economy, and that means these corporations can get up, get away with putting up prices willy-nilly, nothing to do with wages, and unfortunately, the um, industrial relations changes that went through Parliament towards the end of last year, uh, put forward by the Albanese government, while they had a few positive things, they left all the anti-union laws in place, and it's because of the anti-union laws which tie up and make it really difficult for workers to take so-called legal industrial action. That's why wages have been held back for so many years. And I think, um, I mean, just adding to some points without sort of making any sort of bold claims, because I think there's actually probably a lot of um, analysis. Um, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, time, in terms of kind of understanding a lot of the kind of dynamics of the capitalist system in terms, in relation to the, to these questions, I guess we're kind of raising, because I guess one of the other things as well that you could possibly observe is, um, without obviously defining it as a kind of overarching factor, but actually going through the COVID-19 pandemic, you can sort of just imagine one of the kind of phenomena that was sort of observed was, you know, a lot of those big corporations, um, you know, through, through the lockdowns, well, particular 
um, set sections of capital. Um, a lot of them did, you know, make ma- a lot of the big sort of corporations like Woolworths and Coles and all that actually ma- ended up making massive profits. And then, of course, now that we're going in sort of now the post sort of lockdown kind of period, you're now noticing that, you know, a lot of comp, a lot of small businesses, a lot of other sort of industries are actually shutting down. In fact, that also connects with, um, you know, the kind of wage subsidy that was sort of given in the form mm. of kind of JobKeeper, because in a sense, um, I remember a lot of kind of, you know, um, corporate sort of com- um, economic commentators were sort of basically pointing out um, that, you know, JobKeeper was in a sense keeping a lot of business on life support because basically a lot of businesses actually were actually going down. Now, obviously in making a lot of these claims, we're sort of not, we're not coming from the perspective of, oh yeah, well, this is sort of like, you know, like this is not not the kind of only sort of day because I think at the end of the day, we have to look at this from a class kind of perspective. Um, and in a sense, um, there is a, this is a, there is a class war going on in a sense that the the capitalists are attempting to kind of basically push put all the costs of all the cri- of this crisis that we're in with the cost of living and the growing inflation they're essentially wanting to put the cost on to us and of course that's why you know institutions like the reserve bank of, uh, bank of australia you know they're only the only thing they're willing to do in terms of implementing um solutions to address the issues of inflation is to increase interest rates they're not even entertaining any other solution because in the end they're very much just serving the interests of you know big business and the capitalists over that of workers well there's also something else which is um in this report so they also talk about how wages are have grown fast, grown more in the private sector than the public sector, and that's um, unusual compared to the part uh, compared to some years ago. Once upon a time, it was always the public sector that led the wage growth, and then the private sector tended to follow behind, usually as a result of union action. And I think what this reflects is the fact that. The federal public service, like the federal government, which, you know, the Liberal Party, but also state governments, regardless of whether they're Liberal or Labor, have also kept wages below the rate, well below the rate of inflation. So they've all, all of these state governments around Australia and the federal government have incredible wage caps of something like two and a half percent or three percent. Um, way below the cost of inflation, and they've been absolutely ruthless about maintaining those wage caps, and those wage caps in the public sector need to be lifted. And I think the public sector unions, which are, you know, some of them, you know, especially in the white-collar area, are weaker than in the blue-collar areas, haven't been very successful uh, or very bold about taking industrial action to challenge these wage caps. And then in the private sector, bosses are trying to say, oh, we're being good people by raising wages more than in the public sector. Not true. This, the, any wage increases in the, um, in the private sector are a result of unions which still have enough, the, the particular unions which still have enough organising capacity to fight for and win real wages. Bosses in the private sector still, despite the rate of inflation, still putting forward puny wage increases like 2% or 1.5% or 2.5%, way below um, inflation. And um, it would only be the unionised sector that is winning wage rises. 
and we've got a huge non-union sector where workers are too intimidated to join um, unions or, or where they're not organised by unions because there aren't many members. So, um, I mean, basically, we can't, we need to fight in every workplace where there are people with a consciousness that need to do this to fight for decent wage wage rises. Hmm. And I think probably one thing that possibly has to be raised is I think this, you know, the fact that this this has come out in the ABC. I mean, it would be good if um, you know, if the if the trade unions um, leaderships were kind of looking at this because I actually would argue that you know this does raise the basis of a potentially you know a potential kind of mass campaign um, that as an issue that can actually unite all the kind of different sort of workers um, across the, across the sector in a sense that we need. We need to actually have a worker kind of led sort of campaign um, that's that's taken up by all trade unions um, nationally, you know, for wage um, for wage increases above uh, above inflation. Now we have obviously we've had seen um, or raising wages that keep up a campaign to raise wages to keep up with inflation. Like I think this would be actually a very important sort of campaign if it was sort of undertaken by workers, because I think this is something that could unite all the mm. kind of sections of the workforce, and it's obviously something that impacts on everyone, and so there's a real basis that something, yeah, that you, we could actually, that something like this could happen. Yeah, absolutely, and in fact, there have been, um, there was an article in the media some, yesterday, I can't remember where I saw it, where um, some unions, including CFMEU, which is in the construction sector, and uh, some other unions were basically saying that they will flex their industrial muscle to go for wage rises that, you know, keep up with inflation. Um, but the unions that commented were the more um, industrially strong and well-organised unions. There's a need for some of the other unions, including white-collar unions, to actually follow the lead of the stronger unions and so that we can get an increase in workers' wages right across all industries. Um, that's what we need, and um, and some solidarity, and we need the ALP to change the IR laws to remove all every single one of these anti-union laws, uh, every single one of these laws that make it difficult for workers to take industrial action. All right. Well, um, I was thinking that we might go play a quick announcement, but then I was going to just play um, play a song. So I thought we'd play. Um, we'll start off the morning a bit with um, with some Felma Plum. I was going to play Homecoming Queen um, by Felma Plum, and I think that. Um, and then we'll go on to possibly our first kind of pre-recorded sort of um, talk of of the program. Um, so yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR eight five five AM. Did you know that women make up just 2% of tradies? AMWU Victoria wants to change that, but we need your help. Are you searching for a rewarding career with a high-value skill set? It's time to consider becoming a tradeswoman. For more information, come to the Hume Women in STEM and Construction Careers and Jobs Expo on Wednesday the 1st of March to kickstart your career. Register at Eventbrite or visit amwu.org.au slash events underscore W-I-T. The Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Victoria is a 3CR supporter.
Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and you're just um, listening to Homecoming Queen by Thelma Plum. And now I'm going to go pass it on to Sue to just introduce the next segment of the program. So the next segment is going to be a recording of a very interesting talk given by Uncle Gary Murray at the uh, forum that Social Alliance and Green Left, Re- Green Left organised 
on Monday night called uh, Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice. Uncle Gary spoke along with um, Lydia Thorpe, the um, First Nations Senator. Um, so Uncle Gary Murray is a multi-clan descendant of the Wamba Wamba, Judaroa, Rajri, Yorta Yorta, Baraparapa, Jabarung and Weragaya nations and he's also been uh, a, he was a founding member and still involved in the Victorian Traditional Owners Land Justice Group and he's um, he's someone who's been campaigning around First Nations issues traditional owner issues for many many years including trying to open up the treaty process in Victoria to represent all 38 nations instead of the current situation where only 10 first, 10 Aboriginal nations are represented in uh, the Victorian First People's Assembly um, and the other uh, other 28 nations are excluded. Um, so uh, over to the recording of Uncle Gary Murray's talk. All right. Good evening, everybody. Um, you're looking good there, even if I can't see you. Um, I'd like to um, pay my respects to all the First Nations in Victoria, and there are 38 First Nations, and they've all got clans and histories and language and country and all that. And my concern, my concern about the, the voice goes back a long way. We've heard it all before. We've seen our elders walk from Corrindirk in the 1880s to complain about stuff to Parliament and it fell on deaf ears. We've seen people walk up from Cumbergundia into Victoria and a similar thing happened there. And we've seen the Aboriginal Development Commission, um, the Aboriginal Loans Commission, Department of Aboriginal Affairs. All these structures um, have basically gone because they failed. And why they failed is because there is a lack of self-determination in practical terms. And we see it every day in this state. And I'm, I'm only going to talk about this state, but I reckon it would apply to all the other states and territories as well. Of course, we need a national entity, but we don't need an advisory committee. That is rubbish. You know, we've been there, done that back in the 1950s and um, 1960s. Um, and... That's all they are, advisory committees. Um, ATSEC, whilst it had some problems, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander uh, Commission, I think that was on the right track. And then John Howard comes along and wipes out um, the body as well as the funding. And then so now, um, 2nd of February 2016, I'm fast forward in a bit, um, we had a huge statewide meeting at Zinc Conference Centre in Biray Mark, Federation Square, and 400 plus people turned up from all over the state. And the debate was about the voice, constitutional reform. And that particular statewide meeting was strongly against the voice and any constitutional reform and wanted a treaty, wanted an elders entity and all the nations involved in this treaty process with the state of Victoria. And that's what happened. We went on that path. February 2016, and people seem to forget it, particularly those new skin leaders that are out there running around saying they represent that cause. Well, they don't. The mandate was done in February 2016, 
at Fed Square, and that mandate has never been changed. We oppose the voice, oppose constitutional reform, and the latest versions of it are even worse than what was mooted back there in 2016. What we need is a sovereign entity, not necessarily put in the constitution, probably not, and we need an entity that um, can avoid the Johnny Howards of the past where it gets abolished because the political government at the time chooses to do that. We want something that is sustainable. We want something that's linked to local communities, particularly First Nations. We have 38 nations in Victoria, and they've all got different levels of operating. And I'll tell you this now, um, it, this mob in Canberra and, and the elite leadership think that we're, we're going to settle for two representatives. they got to be joking. You know, how is, how is two reps going to represent 38 First Nations? That's impossible. And that's proven today with the First Peoples Assembly, where only 10 nations out of 38 have a seat on that assembly, compliments of the two co-chairs who haven't shown proper leadership, and they should be gone. They've wasted three and a half years of taxpayers' dollars. They haven't got the eldest entity set up either, and they certainly haven't got 38 nations sitting in the assembly. Um, this assembly expires probably June when the next election's on, and we hope there'll be structural challenges. But notwithstanding, we've now got the First People's Assembly, we've got the Treaty Authority being set up, we have a self-determination fund of some $60 million pumped into it as the first instalment to allow First Nations to engage experts and have meetings and the rest of it to finally draft treaties across their state. And that's really important. And my view is that what we're trying to fix up here in this state, once we got it right, it's the perfect model for perhaps the, um, the Commonwealth um, climate as well. Um, I think it's really important that we recognise that, you know, our dispossession, our dispersal, our deculturalisation, the mass murders, the rapes, and everything else that was going on on colonisation is still here with us. It's baggage we have every generation, and we have to fix this. Every day of my life, I wake up. In fact, when I was born in Barrow Randall in 1951, September, it was a hot summer, and... Um, my mother and her friend um, had my mother had to birth me on the veranda of that hospital, you know, and there was no white sheets in them days. It was just grey blankets out on the veranda with the mosquitoes and snakes and everything else, while the white mothers went inside. And that's from day one with me, and I've seen that racism and, and all that all my life. And I've been around seven decades, so I've seen the politics. I've seen the people involved in it. I think what's out there at the moment is a very dangerous elite, and we see them in our ivory towers at Melbourne Uni and even in the Assembly. And these fellows need to get sorted out. They need to come back to the people and start sorting out a proper way of doing cultural business, and that includes the political structures that we, that we need to do. On the question of sovereignty, I, I think the jury's still out on that, and I won't believe no advice, because that's exactly what it is. You need to get a high court judge or retired judges to have a look at it and make sure that our sovereignty has never ceded. And um, my guess is that as long as we don't cede it, it's still there. What we've got to work out is how we live it, how we practice it, 
what sort of land rights we need to make sure, just like the Canadian Indians and the American Indians I visited in 1987, there was one uh, reservation that had 900,000 acres, had its own hydro scheme, their own housing, their own tribal council and the police to enforce the law, L-O-R-E. And that, to me, was a concept that could work here in Victoria. Um, and we'd obviously get, have to get land back to do that. And to make the point about land rights, we're just a little black dot on the map of Victoria. We haven't got much land back. We've got about 25,000 acres across the state, spread between Lake Tyres, Birmingham and Camerakundi up in southern New South Wales, and, you know, bits and pieces with co-ops and homesteaders and the rest of it. That's not good enough. If we're going to lift our people out of, you know, the potential of what's happening in other springs and you don't have to look at Alice Springs to sort of see what's bad about dispossession and dispersal and deculturalisation. You can go to Swan Hill here. You can go anywhere in one of the 35 communities around this state and you can sort of see that we also have the socioeconomic, the subcultural poverty and the rest of it. And it's really important that we address that stuff. And the only way you address that is by having First Nations clans treaties and we still have to work out what that means. And 38 nations with 300 clans across Victoria. And by the way, it's a lot of genocide in that, in that sort of numbers. Um, for example, you're all sitting on Wurundjeri or, um, or Wurundjeri country. And Wurundjeri, for example, have seven clans, but only two are recognised as having descendants. So the five other clans, the genocide's completed them, disappeared them off this globe. And that's an indictment on colonisation even now, and what's happening to us. Um, I think it's it's good that councils are now starting to get involved in the treaty space, and, and, and that's what it is. It's a treaty space that's unique in Victoria, and we need to look hard at how this fits with the national scene. Nationally, um, we, we definitely need something national. Uh, we have to replace the old attic, and I think we can do something better. But, you know, this issue of the advisory committee Better in a constitution, I don't agree with one bit. I think it's a wrong move, wrong political move, and it's um, taken scraps from the white man's constitutional table. <laughs> and the funding of um, First Nations, obviously, you know, there's the $60 million in the self-determination fund, but that's to build the capacity of the nations to do their treaties, negotiate their treaties with the state. And I think that's an interesting thing for Victoria. But overall, I think we need to review how we fund Aboriginal affairs in this state. There is corruption. There is nepotism. There is cronyism. We all know that. It's been there for years. And it's time we fix that up. And we might have to even look at some sort of Indigenous First Peoples um, Anti-Corruption Commission, for example. So that would be new. I think um, treaties have to have integrity. They have to have culture. They have to be professional and well-organised. And um, I think um, our people are in a position here in Victoria to do that stuff. And at the moment, this voicing is a bit of a distraction. And I think we need to get back to what the real game is. That is, start writing our treaties. You know, don't complain about it. If you're not sitting out there drafting your family's treaties up, drafting up your clan's treaties and drafting up your nation's treaties. And um, I think that's really important. We start getting our heads around what goes in a treaty. It's really straightforward. Treaty is an agreement, like a contract. And basically what would go in is, is it would address the question of sovereignty, 
what does it mean in practical terms and what sort of funding it would need. It would address the reparations question, the ongoing compensation for loss of our lands and waters, minerals and everything else. It would address the issue of um, land rights and all the other things. Treaty is like a book with chapters and there's a chapter on everything. On our country, we have all the chapters around things like stolen gens, kids that are out of home care and so on and so on. We need to start looking at it at the local level. We need to really look at that local scene and say, right, how is a treaty, how is anything going to fix that? And there's a lot of stuff out there that needs fixing. We're still getting deaths in custody. What, how bad is that? 1991 was when that report came out from the Royal Commission. Here we are, virtually 30 years later, and we're still copping deaths in custody and, and bad stuff like that. So I think from, a, from the point of view, treaty can work for us, but I think we've got to play it very carefully. And we've got to make sure we're on top of the game here. Just one other thing, I suppose. Um, my, my grandfather, Professor Doug Nichols, um, has a couple of quotes for you to, to think about. You can play the black notes on a piano and play the white notes, but to get harmony, you have to play both. Think about that in the context of reconciliation, race relations, and having, um, you know, good neighbours and the rest of it. And he also said, how can we fly like eagles when you feed us like chooks? And I think that's really important because the advisory committee is a chook. All right, you're, list, you're just listening to um, Gary Murray, uh, Uncle Gary Murray. I'm speaking at the public forum, um, um, public forum, uh, Sorry, <laughs> um, Treaty, Sovereignty and First Nations Justice, which took place on January 20th. And um, for our listeners, um, apologies for some of the technical kind of issues of that. Of that. Um, basically, um, when the meeting had um, had occurred, it was sort of over, it was over Zoom, played to a kind of audience um, in the drill hall, the multicultural hub. And there was sort of a bit of a kind of a number of sort of technical mishaps and they were sort of reflected a bit in the recording. Um, now, one good thing is, um, just a few things I just want to note is, um, if you go onto the Green Left website, greenleft.org.au, um, look under video, you can get a full recording of the Sovereignty, Shreedy and First Nations Justice Forum, including, um, hearing the talk by Lydia Forbes. But also, we've also captured all the kind of discussion that, um, occurred, um, at that public forum. In fact, there was actually quite a lot of good discussion, a lot of great responses um, to, to, to that event. Um, so I think there's a lot, there's a lot um, there. And also, I also, within Green <coughs> Left, we are, we are actually hoping we can do a bit of a special podcast with Gary Murray at some point where we actually go into detail about a lot of his kind of views on a whole range of kind of um, issues. So that potentially we might be playing segments of that um, at, on future sort of Green Left kind of radio programs. So, but yeah, I just thought I would... Um, Note that, yeah, you can definitely go go on the Green Left website so you can get a kind of full mm-hmm. recording. But, yeah, it was definitely well, a regular. One other message coming out of the public me- that particular public meeting, um, it was a great opportunity for Lydia Thorpe to be able to explain her views without it being uh, media grabs chosen by media editors um, so she could put forward her full views and answer any questions and so forth, as well as Uncle Gary Murray talking about his conception of how a treaty process could occur. But the other message coming out of that meeting is that it is really important this year with this whole debate about the voice to parliament that regardless of how people 
you know, progressive-minded people who want to support First Nations rights, um, regardless of whether you think you should vote yes or no in the constitutional referendum, that we can't allow the discussion of other First Nations issues, such as treaty, black deaths in custody, housing crisis and all of the other issues like the bail reform and so forth to be dropped off the agenda and all be subsumed under the discussion about the voice. We need to campaign for these other issues, especially treaty, which commits the government to certain things, providing we get good treaties. Um, and, and that is really important because the voice doesn't really guarantee anything. Um, it just guarantees an advisory committee. Um, we need to make sure we campaign on all of these other things. Otherwise, what will happen is there'll be a constitutional referendum and the government will probably kick the treaty question down the road, potentially to the next century or decades away. Um, so we can't afford that. The only way we can guard against that is if we do some serious campaigning this year. Absolutely. Um, now, I was just going to play a quick few um, announcements, um, and then I might just do a quick news report from Green Left, and then we'll go on to our kind of first interview from the program, um, first live interview of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. <laughs> The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nesssolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Now, I'll just give a quick kind of news kind of report. Um, this, this is actually something, this is drawn, I guess, from the pages of Green Left. Um, but just, just a kind of new, quick news report that, um, the New South Wales police actually arrested a young, um, housing activist at midnight on February 18 after a housing protest outside the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and the Reserve Bank of Australia in Martin Place the day before. Now, this protest, which was organised by um, Socialist Alternative Campus groups, was held in Martin Place and, I guess, was, a- was aimed at highlighting the lack of housing um, security and affordability. And so one of the organisers was um, the New South Wales Student Representative Council Education Officer, Sharish um, Kruman, um, who was detained for more than four hours before the charges of aggregated trespass were even read out to her. Now, her bowel conditions um, means that she is not allowed into the CBD. Um, she will attend court on March 8, where she, intent- she intends to challenge the conditions. 
the, the Guardian reported on February 22nd that um, the police sheet had seen that um, had alleged that the group had not signed a Form 1 public assembly notification and that some protesters had entered the CBA, um, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, to protest. But I think this is actually very sort of outrageous. And I think, yeah, we should just extend all the kind of solidarity with, um, with Sharish um, because I just think this is just an kind of example of how repressive these kind of anti-protest laws are are being applied um, within, especially within the New South Wales context. But of course, we can't forget even in Victoria, they're trying to implement, you know, anti-protest laws targeting, you know, people, um, people for, um, um, protesting against forests. Well, I think there is a difference in the laws between New South Wales and Victoria because we don't have to go through this process for to, in order to hold protests in Victoria. In New South Wales, um, for demonstrations. Uh, activists in New South Wales are forced to go through this stupid drama of filling in these Form 1 um, applications to hold a protest. And so often there are fights in the courts over the right to protest. And in Victoria, the, you know, current, the current state of play in Victoria, especially as I think we're the only state with a Charter of Human Rights and responsibilities. It's not as good as a Bill of Rights, but it's um, better than what exists in the other states. We don't have to apply for these sort of permission. You don't have to apply for permission to hold a protest yeah. um, so, in well, Victoria. Ma- yeah. Okay, so um, you can read um, the news story on greenleft.org.au and yeah, we'll definitely have possibly more kind of discussion, potentially even maybe an interview coming up. So yeah, I'm just going to play a quick announcement and we'll go on to our next interview. Live it up at this year's National Sustainable Living Festival, showcasing solutions to the ecological challenges of our times. Join the sustainability movement for a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Featuring the great local picnic at Royal Botanic Gardens for a big green day out with ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiadis. Full program online, slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And um, we're actually joined today by um, a journalist with Green Left for our first live interview for the program. And um, Isaac actually... In, especially, this is actually a good sort of follow-up in terms of the discussion we actually had about wage growth, actually, um, in particularly talks about a kind of new sort of angle to this kind of question. But Isaac just recently produced an article um, titled Happier and Healthier, Why We Need a Four-Day Workweek. Um, so, yeah, good morning, um, um, good morning, Isaac. Good morning. How are you going? So, um, I guess the kind of first question, I mean, to kind of start off, I guess, this kind of discussion, you argue, I guess, in your article, and this is sort of the main, the kind of opening sort of argument in, in the, your, the piece that you've kind of produced, but you basically point out that this idea of a traditional nine to five, five day work week is increasingly, um, outdated. And I guess, what do you think is sort of the background and the context, um, that sort of guides this sort of, um, this sort of, um, discussion that's currently happening around work? Yeah, so I think work has changed a lot. Uh, the five-day work week isn't actually this long-standing uh, natural thing that we've had. It's, it's only fairly recent, um, kind of coming into 
common kind of use in the last hundred years or so. Um, and what's happened recently is there's been this increase in casualized gig economy work. Um, people are working kind of different kinds of hours. And then the other factor is the, the pandemic kind of really disrupting, you know, our kind of work patterns. Um, lots of people doing things like working from home or having to change up how they're, how they're working. So I think the whole thought process about like how we work, how does work fit into our lives has been something that's kind of been put on, put on people's minds lately. So I think that's kind of the context of, of why there's this kind of growing discussion. Um, but there's a, been a report recently released by the Australia Institute called Theft by Any Other Name, and that they found that, um, that across Australian workers, uh, a whole bunch of people, like nearly uh, 50 to 60%, were unhappy with how much they're working. Um, and out of those people, about half were complaining that they work too much, and the other half complaining that they don't work enough. So there's uh, people who are in full-time roles, working five days a week, um, but working lots of overtime, potentially having you know a second job, a third job, which is becoming more and more common, um, and really feeling overworked, stressed, tired out. Uh, and then there's another group who are in these kind of uh, casualized jobs. Uh, they're not getting regular hours, and they really want to have more job stability, more kind of regular shifts, like regular rosters um, so that they can feel kind of, you know, financially stable, and especially in the context of the cost of living crisis where prices are going up through the roof, you know, rents, uh, mortgages, cost of food, petrol is all going up. It makes sense that people want to, you know, be able to work more to afford it. Um, but then there's a whole, yeah, the other group of people who feel like they're working too much. So, it's kind of about addressing that balance in some way. Um, and one of the recommendations of that report was to continue the kind of historic trend of reducing the number of hours that we work a week. Um, so if you look back, uh, Industrial Revolution, people were working, you know, 12-hour days, six days a week, like having Sunday rest, uh, and then, you know, started with like a half-day rest on Saturday, eventually for having a weekend and you know, these kind of eight-hour days, like those campaigns that have consistently kind of brought work hours down. Um, but now with, you know, these different kind of uh, irregular work patterns, uh, people are working, you know, more and more hours uh, while other people are finding themselves underemployed or unemployed. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a way to address that balance um, and hopefully make people's lives better in the process. Thanks, Isaac. Um, I've got, uh, it's Sue Bolton here, um, the other presenter. Um, I've got a, another couple of questions to ask. Um, one thing, um, I'm interested in is that when the shorter working week campa- campaign started to introduce the, or win the 35 hour week, I was sort of involved in the tail end of that when I was working in a metal factory in Brisbane. And at that point, the, uh, AMFSU, as it, as the union was called then, um, produced a booklet on the shorter working week and they were sort of looking at when you reduce working hours for the shorter working week, um, you could create all of these jobs to address the issue of unemployment and um, create jobs for people. And then 
you know, so we won that. And uh, like we eventually won that. Some unions, not every union won that. Um, some unions won the 38 hour week, which wasn't as good. Um, but what we've had happen in, um, a number of industries like construction is that they've still got the 35 hour week, which may, results in a number of days off, but they actually work huge amounts of overtime. Um, and probably construction isn't the only union, but it's um, one of the unions. So they get the benefit of some clear days off delineated, so some recreation. But because of the massive overtime, there's no actual creation of extra jobs as, as a result of it. I was just wondering if you might be able to comment or... Um, you know, if if you're aware or if you in your uh, research about this issue, um, you know, if uh, about the question of uh, massive overtime cancelling out, in a sense, the um, benefits of the shorter working week. And I imagine by four day week, you're talking about a 32 hour week. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Just to clarify, the four day week is is working one less day and not working extra hours on the other days. You're working you know, less hours uh, for the whole week. Um, and, yeah, overtime is a massive problem. That's one of the things that was cited as by these people who have these kind of full-time positions. Uh, I think the report was finding it was generally older workers working uh, overtime, uh, like loads of hours of overtime, um, whereas, yeah, there's a bunch of people who are unemployed and, and underemployed. Um, and I think it's not going to be just this magic switch where you say, okay, we've got a four-day work week now, uh, and that's going to solve the problems. There's a whole whole um, other bunch of res- uh, policy kind of responses that was recommended in this Australia Institute report as well, um, including kind of putting limits on overtime, so not letting, you know, employers kind of get their workers to work, you know, all these extra hours every week. Um, so yeah, limiting overtime in, uh, is an important factor of that. And then the other recommendations they had was um, including a kind of inva- advanced rosters, so you kind of know when you're, you're going to be working ahead of time, um, reducing casualisation, uh, uh, having better access to leave, and then yeah, the shorter working hours. So. Um, it's going to be a, have to be a combination of all those factors, and I yeah. think like, it's it's a, the other thing is that we can't just let kind of the few companies who are trialling these four-day work weeks uh, dictate the terms of, of what that will mean. It has to be a kind of a grassroots campaign from workers to make sure that this isn't just a way to uh, you know, increase productivity for for the bosses, but actually to make workers' lives a Workers' lives better, which is kind of like the whole the whole point um, of this transition to le- working less, um, at least for workers and from our perspective. Um, well, very very important, and also especially shorter working week with no cut in pay. Um, I yeah. wanted to just ask you one thing, uh, which is about the benefits of the four day working week. Um, what have the results of some of the trials that have been adopted shown about the benefits? I know um, in, in various jobs I've been in where there's been a 35-hour week and a clear day off a fortnight, 
Um, workers have often said to me the best thing the union ever won was the day off every fortnight, <laughs> the 35-hour yeah. week, because wage increases get gobbled up by inflation, etc. Um, and so, whereas the day off um, is a clear thing. So, what what would you say about the benefits of the four-day week? Yeah, so there's there's been a lot of different kind of trials and studies in in various countries. Um, in November, it was reported that Unilever ANZ is is a uh, trialling a four-day work week in Australia after having a successful kind of 18-month trial in New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, that was a reduction to four days uh, work without um, a reduction in wages. Uh, and they found a whole a lot of benefits. Um, I guess on one side, they found that productivity actually increased and they didn't have any drop in revenue and stuff. like So it worked out for the company. But more importantly for the workers, they reported a feeling a better work-life balance, um, feeling a lot less stress, and actually reported feeling uh, feelings of strength and vigor at work. So it obviously um, makes people feel, uh, I guess, happier at work, and also kind of a happier with their work, like how work is fitting into their lives in general. Um, another experiment in Iceland which was initiated after campaigning by trade unions, um, found that the workers reported that were happier and healthier. So I'll just kind of, it's not just like, oh, it feels good to have days off, but actually health benefits from feeling less stress and actually having time to, you know, do things like go to the doctor or go um, to the dentist or, you know, uh, exercise, all these other benefits that um, accrue. Um and then it also gives you more time to spend doing, you know, like kind of the things that we actually want to do in our lives that are more fulfilling. So spending time with, you know, friends and family, um, doing things like, you know, hobbies, learning an instrument or reading or, you know, just like getting household activities done. Um, one, one study found that one of the benefits was that uh, unpaid kind of domestic work um, which uh, at the moment falls overwhelmingly on women, um, it, it was easier to kind of create a balance in a in a household between men and women doing work when there's there's actually more time at, uh, at home. Um, so that's an, another good factor. Um, but yeah, that work life balance in pretty much all the studies that I looked at was was a massive uh, success. Like. And the reported feelings of, yeah, feeling much kind of more happier and satisfied. I mean, I'm sure it's kind of easy to imagine if you're working less, feeling a bit happier. I think that's something that we probably all relate to and have, and while not actually, uh, feeling the impacts of that in terms of not losing any, any pay and still kind of having a secure job, um, but still having time to actually pursue things that you want to pursue and, you know, uh, deal with the kind of other aspects of life that, that need time devoted to them. Um, like, for example, uh, workers who were on the four-day work week were, didn't need to take as many sick days, um, didn't need to take uh, other days off because they were already able to kind of do things that they needed to get done in, in that extra day that was... Or, extra day off um 
while still having those leave options available as well uh, is really important. So yeah, it's it's, uh, it's kind of a first step towards uh, a complete reimagining of work. Like it seems kind of radical to some people, but it's only uh, I, I would say it's not too radical of a proposal. It's it's just um, actually something that makes sense in our current kind of context. Hmm. Well, going back, that's a good sort of lead into, I guess, our kind of next kind of question, because I guess probably one of the, I'll just sort of add a bit of a quick comment here to the question, because I think one of the things about this whole discussion around the four-day working week is probably one of the, one of the dynamics of the capitalist system is that actually, as capitalism has sort of grown and actually developed, um, you know, the productivity of labour has actually increased quite significantly, especially with um, technological kind of advancements. In fact, you know, we're kind of living in a time where technology has actually made things more convenient um, and more productive than we've ever had um, we, and then, than we've ever had in history, especially when you compare, you know, the nature of work in the early 20th century to, um, to where we are kind of now. But I guess that kind of flows in, why do you think that capitalists don't want to necessarily implement a four-day work and why is it that workers will have to campaign for it to make it a reality? And, of course, I just want to sort of add this, I thought would make this, I guess, the kind of final kind of question in terms of... Um, and yeah, in terms of concluding the interview, especially in just in just making um, making time for the rest of the program. Yeah, so yeah, that's a, definitely a good point about technology making you know uh, work more efficient and more productive. So if you look back to you know what what Karl Marx wrote about uh, the uh, what kind of in wages, prices, and profit, what commodities actually are valued at, and why like why. Uh, yeah, what commodities are actually worth is about how much social labor goes into their creation. So, uh, if you have new technology that makes, uh, things easier to produce, then their, uh, their value kind of goes down over time. So, um, we could, we have a lot of technological advances in the last, uh, hundred, couple hundred years that have made certain things really easy to do, um, and need a lot less kind of, you know, human labor uh, to be involved uh, because we've got, you know, machines that can do things and we've worked out more efficient, uh, better systems. Um, and you'd think, oh, we've got all these advantages. Uh, that means we can work less because, you know, that machine's going to do half the work. But people are still working all these hours. Um, if you look back to, like, early 1900s, the, the there's a lot of predictions about in the year 2000 we'll only be working like five hours a week because of technology um, and that hasn't panned out and the main reason for that is that all these benefits of this productivity aren't going towards making lives better or like making sure there's no one um, hungry and there's no one homeless like that's that's stuff that we have the capability to do but all of those benefits are just going towards the profits of of big businesses because they can kind of squeeze out more and more uh, productivity from each worker that can make more and more money um, and then, you know, continue accumulating profits. Um, so that's kind of uh, the, 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 that's kind of a reason, I guess, for kind of hesitation with a four-day work week is, is capitalists see it as like, well, why would I give you another day off when I can, can, can kind of use that extra time to squeeze more squeeze more uh, money out of you, more profits. 
and more work. Um, and I think that's going to be something that they're not going to give up easily um, because it's 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 like almost a way of, of re uh, thinking of like why are we working. It's not we're not just working to produce as much profit as possible, which is what the capitalists want. But it's it makes people think why am I what what role does work have in my life? And work it should be a way like how we how we create what we need for society and create what we need for people um, in an ecologically kind of sound way. And that's completely a contradiction with uh, the capitalist way of thinking. So I think there's going to be a lot of resistance from the capitalists. Some some businesses seem to be quite, like, in favour of this. Like, I think a lot of white-collar kind of jobs, they kind of see it as, like, a way to uh, get people, uh, like people who want to work for them. Like, we've seen it with the working from homes uh, side of things where some big companies have, have cut, have tried to bring their workers back into the office and the workers have said, no, actually, I want to work from home and they've moved to another company or whatever. But that's only in these kind of kind of white-collar, uh, you know, tech jobs and, you know, those kind of um, those jobs like that. Uh, whereas in industries where it's um, more blue-collar, uh, working class kind of roles. Um, there hasn't been as much of movement on this uh, from businesses. So I don't think we can just kind of say, oh, there's a couple of businesses doing trials, so it'll happen kind of inevitably. Because um, all the other wins historically have come from workers organising um, to demand these changes. So uh, if we want to actually win this, it will require... You know, unions to be centrally involved, uh, and combining with you know grassroots campaigning from activists and, and campaigners on the streets, um, because it's it, otherwise the if, if it's if it's directed from the top down, it's going to be set up to you know, advantage the bosses, whereas we actually want it to be something that makes uh, workers' lives better. Um, the other uh, kind of aspect is that if the unions really did take on this campaign for a four-day work week, I think it could help reinvigorate the union movement. I think a lot of workers who are who are not in, they're involved in their unions who who would see this as a really kind of tangible um, kind of campaign that they can imagine, you know, getting on board with and joining. Um, so it could potentially be, uh, you know, a reinvigorating uh, campaign for the union movement, which is... Uh, as we know, has been losing losing momentum um, and losing kind of numbers uh, over the last few decades. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's, it's it's high time for some 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 change and some wins. Uh, and hopefully, if if we if we do take on this kind of four day work week campaign as a, as a society, um, it can actually be a kind of jumping off point for for more. Um, better, even even more radical change uh, in the future going forward. All right. Well, thank you very much um, for that, Isaac. And just for our listeners, you can actually read um, Isaac's article, and it's titled Happy and Healthier, Why We Need a Four-Day Workweek. And, yeah, you can read that online on greenleft.org.au. But, yeah, thank you very again for joining us, Isaac. Um, Thanks for having me. All right, um, I'm just going to go play a quick announcement um, and we just have a bit of time to just quickly go through the Green Left Actors Club. We just that probably went a bit over time, but I think, you know, it was a good um, and informative kind of discussion.
You're listening to Green Left Radio. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. So um, Sue was going to make a few kind of announcements. Okay, well, the first announcement is that starting this Saturday and going for a week, um, so starting from this Saturday, the 25th of February, going until uh, Saturday, the 4th of March, there will be a radical book sale at the Resistance Bookshop in Swanson Street, uh, level 5, 407 Swanson Street, uh, opposite RMIT, very close to um, Melbourne Central Station and the State Library. So basically it's 25% off everything, new books, secondhand and sale books, T-shirts, badges, and it's a range of books and so forth that people would be interested in if you're interested in radical politics, radical left-wing politics, um, from ecology to Marxism to his political history to all sorts of different issues. Um, it, so the bookshop will be open every day except for Sunday. Um, so it'll be open from 11am to 6pm, Monday to Friday, and on the Saturday it will be open from 10am to 6pm. So check out the Green Left Activist calendar online um, to double-check the details if you if I've gone too fast for you to be able to copy that down. Um, but just definitely check out the Radical Book Sale at the Resistance Bookshop for going for a week from this coming Saturday to the following Saturday. Also on this coming Saturday, the 25th of February, is a rally outside the a gym in Sunshine that the Nazis have been organising out of. So the action has been titled Migrants and Refugees Welcome Nazi Gyms or Not. Uh, so 1pm this coming Saturday outside Sunshine Station. Then Wednesday night next week on the 1st of March, there's a discussion about how capitalism created racism. Um, this is initiated by the Socialist Alliance and it will be at the Resistance Centre at 6pm, uh, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, opposite RMIT. Um, then on Monday the 6th of uh, March, there'll be a forum uh, organised by the Refugee Action Collective called Justice for Victims of the Fast Track Process at 6.30pm, Kathleen Syme Library in Faraday Street, Carlton. 
Then the last announcement for today is that uh, looking forward a couple of weeks, uh, on Tuesday night, the 14th of March, there'll be a public discussion uh, initiated by Socialist Alliance called Fighting for Trans Rights Today, Challenging the Right-Wing Hysteria at 6.30pm, also at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. And this is a particularly important issue especially given that Donald Trump has announced that trans people are one of his three main enemies and Nazi groups have been organising to try and get trans uh, events cancelled. So this is really important issue for the left and progressive movement to take up uh, and offer solidarity and help build a campaign for trans rights. Um, one of the speakers will be Sally Goldner, who's a pr- presenter in 3CR uh, and has been is a veteran of the Campaign for Trans Rights. And I think Jacob's got the names of the other speakers. All right. So we might just go quite a quick announcement and get on to our, our next interview. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Hi, it's Sue Bolton here, um, back online. Um, we've got a special guest on the program, uh, Danny Miller, who's an organiser with the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, to talk about a dispute which has been going on since mid, mid-January in Shepparton um, at the Visi plant, where um, Visi has been offering way- workers a totally substandard wage a wage offer as part of the enterprise bargaining negotiations. So welcome Danny to talk about the dispute and what workers have been doing to um, force the issue and campaign. Sue, thanks for having me on this morning. Oh great, thanks Danny. Um, maybe the first question, if you could tell people in Melbourne a bit about the background leading to the, to the dispute because a lot of our media in Melbourne is so Melbourne-centric. A lot of people don't know what's happening in regional cities, and you've been carrying out a lot of actions, but a lot of people in Melbourne are not really aware of what's happening. So if you could explain what's what's going on, what caused the dispute. We've been trying to negotiate an enterprise agreement since its normal expiry date mid-last year. Um, we've had some 14 or so meetings with the company, um, during the period up to date, um, we weren't very, um, uh, very 
strong on what we wanted to get, but what we wanted to get was based on, you know, some general improvements and certainly wages was a key aspect of that um, sort of thing. And the company have just come, keep coming back to us with wages that are well below even or just barely above even uh, CPI for this year for a three-year deal. So basically the company's offered us at the start, it was 8% for three years. They've now just slightly amended it to 8.75%. Um, they're removing back pay because of industrial action and all the rest of it. Um, what the members are really seeking is, you know, they're not seeking a increase to keep up or equivalent to CPI, but they want to get as close as they possibly can. And they just want some minor improvements, just some allowance increases and all the rest of it. So um, we don't think that we're being too extravagant with what we're asking for. Um, this is of the third richest Australian um, Anthony Pratt and a company that has, you know, been extremely busy during the whole pandemic situation by supplying cans to companies like SPCs, um, Campbell Soups, Simplots, Heinz, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, what can, you, can you tell us a bit more in specific kind of detail about some of the kind of demands that the workers are kind of demanding in terms of, in terms of the, um, the kind of ongoing kind of dispute? Um, as I as alluded to, we want to get a decent wage increase. The company, this is a group of workers that have probably taken a few hits over the years to help the company out, um, to keep its profitability, sustainability, all the rest of it. And the company's always promised them every bargaining round, look, the company's in a bit of a tight spot. Um, you know, can you just take sort of this wages off or we'll fix you up? And that's probably happened in the last three years. And I think a lot of the workers have now worked out that they've been lied to the whole way through. They come to a point where they're just saying, well, we need to do better. And, you know, busy can do better um, because of, you know, the, the increased workload over the last three years. Anthony Pratt's own personal wealth has literally doubled in that period um, to take him to, you know, the third richest person in Australia. And, and just using this patterning bargaining that the company uses across all its busy workplaces where it says, well, we're just going to come with a wages outcome. Um, and, you know, workers just have to do it. And if they don't, you know, we'll threaten with lockouts and withdraw any, um, you know, back pay, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually really scandalous that Vizzy isn't coughing up because really 8% over three years, that's 2% a year or 2.5% a year or something like yeah. that. So that is way below inflation and workers deserve to get compensated for, inf- you know, inflation, cost of living. Absolutely. And that, hence why there's been, I think up to um, yesterday, there was the 15th day of industrial action that's occurred across the site in the last few weeks. Um, for that exact reason, we're doing rolling stoppages literally every sort of, th- you know, three days in every week, um, which is coming at a heavy cost and burden. Um, to our members to try and sustain their own households, especially in this high-cost economy. Um, they're doing it hard, extremely hard. You know, with the unions trying to do what they can and the members are sort of jumping on board now to help out, but, you know, um, they're still doing it hard. Yeah. And um, what can you, I guess, tell us about um, some of the actions, I guess, that are being taken by both the union and the workers so far? So literally three days in every week for the last month, um, the members have been um, withdrawing their labour for three straight days. With the company just notified um, yesterday that there'll be further action taken next week. 
and you know who knows what happens in the week after. But the members' the resolve is, you know, it's very strong. Um, they're working on the principle of one day longer, one day stronger, and that's certainly they're showing that in their actions. Uh, we've done a number of activities during the dispute, including standing in front of his head offices and their um, other canning plants um, around the state, and that'll continue to go on until we can get a decent deal on, on the table. So what sort of work do the workers do? So you mentioned canneries. Um, so basically um, the workers make, or the members make um, labels for cans for particular companies, no. is that right? No, they, make, they actually make the, the, the can themselves. Okay. Okay, um, for things like, you know, Campbell Soups cans, mm. SPC cans, so the tin fruit, um, dairy cans as in baby formulas. mm so they do make the actual can themselves. It's a very unique business. Yeah, great. And I noticed that one of the actions you, um, the workers came down and um, to the Visi plant in Coburg, um, that they're going to be starting EBA negotiations soon as well. Um, so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that and the fact that the workers sort of coming together like that was an opportunity for solidarity? It, it was. Um, it was requested by the Coburg plant that we come down and give them a visit. Um, they wanted to have a talk to us because, um, obviously, as you alluded to, they're heading towards their negotiations um, in, a, in, in the not-too-distant future. Um, so they obviously expressed their concerns to us about, you know, probably being tabled the same wages offer, even if you do their patent bargaining on the wage increases across mm. the whole of their businesses, um, that they were not going to be receptive to the company in regards to them being offered 8.75% over three years. And is it true, uh, I thought I read somewhere, but I might be mistaken, that the um, Shepparton plant has a lower pay rate than some of the other Visi plants, is that right, or...? Not right. Uh, that, that, yes, that is correct. That is correct. Um, other enterprise agreements where the AMW were directly involved, that the Shepparton site is lagging behind in the wage increases, which is somewhat the element of disrespect that the workers at Shepparton feel that they're getting from Visi. Um, we've put that to Visi about how we can equalise that. Um, they've basically just thrown it up that you know, it is what it is. Right? Um, they feel that maybe the cost of living is cheaper in regional areas, which I would argue against. <laughs> That's a laugh. <laughs> yes, which I would always argue against. Yeah. Because, you know, our house prices might be a little bit different. We pay more in general other items, like everyday items, food, etc., mm. etc., because of transport costs, etc., etc. Yeah, the cost of living is sometimes high in regional areas. Yes. Yeah, that's outrageous. Yeah. And are there plans to be for more actions in Melbourne at all that we can um, people down here can support? I've got to have a conversation with the AMW State Secretary Tony Mavromatis yeah. um, today to work out there is activities planned um, for next for next week, but at this stage I haven't finalised with him about the locality those. Great. But we certainly we will put it up on our. On our, um, you know, our social media pages. Yeah. Um, if people want to watch those, um, that, and they want to attend, everyone's obviously welcome to attend. Yeah. To show the support for the workers. Um, and it'd be greatly appreciated if people did.
And I think actually if you have a victory of, you know, getting a wage increase that's um, comparable with inflation and CPI, that's a victory not just for the busy workers in Shepparton but, um, but for everyone because I think we really need proper wage increases in this country. We just talked this morning about a report that came out which shows that, you know, in the December quarter wages – have dropped, real wages have dropped by four and a half percent. So it's like the success of your, um, dispute is really, really important for everybody. So, um, we'll definitely follow this. Can you tell us how else people can support the strike with the strike fund and also, um, if there's a picket line that people can visit, um, uh, outside Visi? Generally there's a picket line, um, obviously any road trips down to Melbourne or something like that. Um, there's usually a picket line, let's see, on the, uh, every other day that we're doing the protected action. As I alluded to before at the moment, members are only doing three days a week and that's really just because of financi- financials. Mm. Um, they can't sustain five at this stage, but if we can get enough you know, community support behind us and some donations, um, the members have certainly talked about taking it to the next level. Um, so if we can get that, then you know, the members will take it, take it a pulley on, the bull board horns take busy on. Now that sounds great. Can you tell us where people can donate to the strike fund? I imagine that's on the AMW Facebook page. It is, it is. It, it, on the AMW Victoria web pages, um, oh. there's links in there and social media um, articles about the dispute. Um, in there, there's also um, information in regards to anyone that wants to help support these workers to win this fight because it's really important that we do win this fight. Um, as you've alluded to, this will set a big precedence across the country, let alone you know, amongst all other busy sites. That sounds great. And are you getting good support from work, um, workers in other unions and other factories in Visi? Uh, sorry, in Shepparton? Uh, in, in the township itself? Yeah. Um, for the workers? Yeah. Um, again, it's an area that's you know, probably, you know, financially strapped a little bit um, because of the way it's been treated and collected over the years from bosses and governments. Um, so the workers, the people, the community are sort of rallying around behind. There's a lot of support, um, but it just hasn't converted up, unfortunately, into donations at this stage. Yeah. Okay, um, so we're just running a bit out of time. I think it's been very great um, having this interview, Danny, but do you have, I guess, any sort of last sort of final um, points you want to make? And unfortunately, because we're running a bit out of time on our program, it has to be kind of brief final comments. So, yeah. The workers are firmly entrenched. They'll fight this out to the death. Um, just need that support point. Yeah? If people get on board and help, that would be greatly appreciated. It'll help the workers to deliver justice. Thanks heaps, Danny, and really we wish every success and victory and keep us in touch with what's going on. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, you, Todd. Thanks. All right, we're just um, speaking to Danny Muir from the AMWU about the ongoing kind of dispute with um, Visi, which is a privately owned packaging and recycling company, um, and this is based around their, um, their, um, their work site in Shepparton. We're getting, I guess, to the kind of end of our program. Um, we're probably going 
well, we've got, we've got like probably just only a few kind of minutes left. Um, just a few things I would just like to kind of end on. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for, I guess, for tuning in this week. Um, I guess one probably one small thing is I guess I just want to kind of make it a bit, a bit of appeal to, for, for both FreeCR and Green Left Radio, um, and Green Left in general, because I mean, in a sense, um, people powered media like both Green Left and FreeCR um, relies generously on the contributions of ordinary kind of people to be able to make it happen. And so I want to sort of recommend that if you um, to, if you ha- are not a kind of subscriber of FreeCR that you consider becoming one, you can become a subscriber by going on freecr.org.au and looking for the subscribe sort of option. And then also the same with Green Left. Um, you know, Green Left has been a people-powered leading media um, publication for more than kind of 30 years. Um, it takes... You know, it's because it's a, in a sense, it's a publication that's opposed to the kind of current status quo. We don't get any sort of funding from corporations or any sort of large donations. And so very much it relies generously on, you know, people um, making contribution to keep it um, alive. So if you want to become, if you, I want to kind of sit, if you want to consider becoming a supporter of Green Left, you become a supporter of Green Left by going on greenleft.org.au forward slash support. And you can get a, become a supporter as, uh, as low as $5 a month if you want to get, um, for, for the digital edition of Green Left. Or if you want to get it delivered to your house in pay, in the paper form, you can go, um, you can get, um, you can um, become a supporter of the paper edition for ten dollars a month. So yeah, um, like um, any um, last comments you might want to make, just one minute. Just one thing would be good to mention to people that you, uh, if you check out the Green Left website, there's a really great article on Labor's climate safeguard mechanism and why it must be rejected because basically it's a bit of a trick. It looks like it's taking action for cl- uh, get, uh, to stop climate change, but actually in reality it's a bit of a trick to allow um, companies to keep on producing um, fossil fuel, uh, pr- producing greenhouse gases. So check that out, definitely. All right. Um, like to thank all our listeners again. You're tuning. You're, lis- you're listening to Green Left Radio, and stay tuned for Earth Matters. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that.